0: I want to start by telling you a story of an incredible group of people I met a few years ago as part of my role at Open Doors. I worked there for four years. And uh, I traveled to Egypt. I don't know if anyone in the room has been to Cairo before, but Cairo is a wild city. 16 million people crammed into this fairly uh, tiny space. 70% Muslim majority, 30% Christian minority. And as soon as you fly into the city, you see this Vast conflict as far as the eye can see. Crescent moons on mosques, crosses on cathedrals, as far as you can see. And Christians and Muslims are kind of forced to live in this tension every day of their life. I need to just pause here and say sometimes in our society, I don't know if your life is like mine, but I grew up with the ideology that all Muslims are terrorists. It's just something that we see on the news and it's something that kind of creeps into the back of our mind. I was fairly terrified. I was pretty nervous to be there, to be honest. But it's not actually true at all. Many Muslims are the most hospitable, warm, welcoming people. But unfortunately for this story, a young man, 21 years old, had succumbed to an extremist ideology and he'd taken upon himself to seek out and kill a prominent Christian leader. So what he did was he strapped explosives to himself and he made his way to the local center of Christian worship. Remember, he had grown up a Muslim, so he was aware uh, in his faith tradition, one building a mosque, one prominent leader, so he thought it would be a fairly simple procedure to find this man. But as he made his way past a few checkpoints, uh, his plan was thwarted. There was actually 25 buildings inside this compound. And so he changed his strategy, and he just began to stumble around listening for where he could hear the most sound. It was a Thursday morning, and uh, on Thursdays, women gathered to pray and worship in that church. There was a women's prayer meeting happening. 150 women had gathered that morning as they do every Thursday morning. So he began to make his way towards the chapel where they were worshiping. There was one man present who was a security guard sitting in the gateway to the chapel. And he could see straight away as soon as this man came towards him that something was amiss. So he motioned to him to stop and turn back. But the man continued to approach while the women singing in the room behind him. Eventually, in an act of profound bravery, the security guard stood to his feet and rushed towards the man. The bomber detonated the vest. The security guard died instantly, but this triggered a chain reaction, and the walls of the church collapsed. The roof collapsed, and on that day, 27 women lost their lives. Here's a photo uh, of me and our team standing uh, at that incredible image. I will never forget that moment, the sheer trauma, the horror. You know, we see these images on our screens on TV, and they can become a little bit two-dimensional, a little bit distant. But i tell you what, standing in the physical location of an attack like that was overwhelming. We wept for hours and hours. But i tell you what was more overwhelming than the, uh, the the incident. The next image shows the kind of uh, you know, what the church looked like. This is a hundred, hundreds and hundreds of year old cathedral. You can still see the bomb blast up the side of the wall. Again, forgive me if this is too graphic, but I think this is important for us to come to terms with. The women's blood was still on the wall there behind a sheet of perspex in honor of them so that they would be remembered. Truly overwhelming moment. But what was more overwhelming is this next photo that shows the fact that I was there on a Thursday morning. And 150 women were still gathering to worship Jesus together. Isn't that amazing? ISIS was still marching across uh, the Middle East when I was there. They had named Egypt as their next threat. And these women uh, were saying in a defiant act to them, we don't care what you say or do to us, nothing will stop us from gathering to worship our Jesus. Even behind that scaffolding there, there was five to 10 men up uh, painting and reworking the church, which I just thought was this beautiful image of what it looks like to gather in some of these places around the world. Now, our partner there whispered in my ear and she said, there's a woman here I want you to meet. So she led me across the courtyard towards Maria. And there's a photo of her that'll be on the screen in a moment. You can tell Maria's radiant smile was just full of hope and joy. But as I approached her, her story became more and more evident. You see, she's still wearing black, which was an indicator that she was still in mourning. As I got closer, I could make out the photo around her neck is of a man. That man was the security guard who gave his life on that day to protect so many of those women, her husband. I want you to think about your own faith journey for a moment and maybe compare that to what Maria has gone through. First of all, do you know Jesus? Do you have a deep faith that you can cling to in a time of suffering like this? But more than that, If you are a follower of Jesus, is your faith robust and strong enough that you would continue to cling to him despite the challenges around you? More than that, would you continue to worship in the same place where you have a regular, almost daily reminder of the place where your husband lost his life? I tell you what, I saw all of those things in Maria on that day. But more than that, Maria had one request to her church, to her community of faith. In my husband's honor, can I do his job? Can I be the security guard? The day I met Maria, she was sitting at the gates of the chapel, welcoming people to church, smiling at them, praying for them, filling them with hope and joy. It gave me a newfound uh, respect for the beautiful people that volunteer at churches every week and stand on the door. Maybe for those of you in the room, you'll remember uh, the beauty of what we do the privilege it is to gather and worship, the, the privilege to welcome people into God's house. You know, today's the International Day of Prayer. I'd love you to remember Maria's face. Maybe you can continue to pray for her. Open Doors uh, were the first responders on the day of that incident. They were able to provide Maria with immediate trauma care and response. They were able to feed her and feed her family. Uh, they were able to give her a job eventually, long-term sustainable income but I believe people like Maria still need our prayers. And as you'll see across this sermon this morning, this isn't just an isolated incident in one part of the world. This is actually the case all over the world. Let's have a look at the current state of Christian persecution. Open Doors reports that over 340 million Christians around the world experience a high to severe level of persecution simply for their faith in Jesus, now I worked there for four years. I know that we don't count anything other than religious persecution. If it's, pers- if it's political violence or something else, uh, those stats don't count. It's literally just for their faith in following Jesus. This is important to note though. Before I worked at Open Doors, I thought I understood persecution. I understood ISIS on the news, bombings and killings, but violence is only one half of the story. We looked very, very closely at two wings of persecution that are important for us to understand so we can pray into, violence and pressure. In many ways, the pressure of persecution is more difficult to withstand over a sustained period of time than the knowledge that you may lose your life today. Christians can't get their jobs, family members thrown out of their home the moment they convert, uh, inability to access a Bible, their churches being closed down. In some parts of the world, CCTV cameras are being mandated in church so that the government can observe who is present on a given Sunday. that kind of pressure makes it very, very difficult to follow Jesus. I'll give you three examples of countries around the world to show you how diverse persecution is. The first of all, North Korea has been the most difficult and the most dangerous country in the world to follow Jesus now for 20 years in a row, 20 years running, still the most dangerous place to follow Jesus. Uh, There's a famous saying in North Korea that where two or more are gathered, surely one of them is a spy. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Government uh, are everywhere. They know everything about everything. Uh, We heard stories of children uh, in a classroom, six years old, the teacher would hold up a Bible. Have any of you ever seen one of these before? And if the children even flinch in response, the entire family uh, disappears, isn't seen from again. Despite the challenges Uh, There are 300,000 Christians estimated to live in North Korea. Isn't that beautiful? The hope of the world, the light is still alive in that country. And that's what Open Doors is all about, strengthening Christians to remain no matter the cost. Now, of those 300,000 Christians, 70,000 are sitting in a prison cell as we speak. That's a conservative number, enduring some of the most horrific human rights abuses known to man. Something to pray for is the strength of the church. In North Korea. The second country we'll look at briefly is Afghanistan. It's been all over the news the last few months, but I used to report regularly on the challenges to Christians in Afghanistan, the second most dangerous country to follow Jesus in the world. I actually think it may uh, become more difficult than North Korea this year based on what we've seen with the Taliban rule. Uh, Completely opposite problem to North Korea where you see government control in North Korea, complete absence of government in Afghanistan, a failed state, lawlessness, which ultimately led to the situation now where the Taliban has taken over. Uh, We had reports even recently from our partners. I'm speaking like our is, uh, open doors is still me, by the way. I'm just going to use those terms interchangeably because it's so close to my heart. From our partners in Afghanistan, uh, that Christian pastors preparing to lose their life for Jesus even this week? Think about that for a moment, if that was your reality. Will you lose your life for Jesus this week? A very, very real prospect in the nation of Afghanistan. Finally, just for this brief introduction, is the nation of India. This might be surprising to many of you. The world's technically largest democracy, uh, but is now the 10th most dangerous country in the world to follow Jesus. There's an extremist Hindu group called the RSS, that have a mission statement to eliminate Christianity. Their original mission statement was to eliminate Christianity by the end of this year, 31st of December. They haven't succeeded, though, because the church is advancing and exploding. But the challenge for Christians is so incredibly real. We were getting reports of 70 to 80 churches being burned a week, pastors whose children were being abducted and killed uh, just because the pastor would refuse to stop sharing the gospel. I met some of the most incredible people in my time at Open Doors from the nation of India advancing the gospel, no matter the cost. Women who were beaten almost to death uh, because they had converted and their husbands had found out. I mentioned this to Scott earlier that it can seem so distant, but nearly every time I preached a sermon on persecution in a church in Australia, there would be a woman that would come to me and say, the moment I gave my life to Jesus, I began to experience domestic violence in my own home and I never had a grid for that. And that's maybe something else you can keep in mind, that there may even be people in our midst, in our community, that are suffering uh, for their faith in Jesus. It's important for us to be aware of. Now, look, you might think, James, that's a really uh, tough way to start a sermon. (laughs) Where's the good news in that? I need to just pause and acknowledge the fact that Jesus himself endured suffering unto death And he actually promised us persecution if we follow him. Some of you might be on the brink of making a decision to follow Jesus today. I can tell you, it's a costly pursuit. For many of us in the room, maybe you haven't heard this message before and you're asking yourself, why aren't I persecuted for my faith? It's a really good question to ask. I think it's more simple than just because we live in a prosperous Western society. Maybe we've become a little bit dull to what it means to share Jesus. I'm preaching to myself here as much as I am to you. Let's have a look at what Jesus said himself. John 15:18. Any Taylor Swift fans out there, I call this the haters gonna hate verse. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus kind of says, guys, it's part and parcel of what it means to follow me. He goes on in verse 20. But if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's a promise. Life is going to get tough if you choose to follow Jesus. But the good news in this is that persecution produces amazing fruit in our life as we choose to follow him. And I've witnessed this all around the world. I've seen it in the Australian church. I've seen it in Uh, some of these stories that I'm about to share with you, the fruit of persecution. But before we go on in Scripture, I want to read this passage here from the Apostle Paul, but I think it's important for us to pause and remember Paul's background himself. This seems a bit obvious, but some of you might have forgotten. He used to be referred to as Saul. I like to describe him as an expert in the art of persecution. He tells us this in his own testimony, that he was holding the garments of the men who were stoning the first Christian martyr, Stephen, fully complicit, complicit in his death. Christians were terrified of Saul. And then he has a profound encounter with Jesus, as we know, on the road to Damascus. His life is forever changed. And then he begins writing stories to strengthen the church, himself sitting in a prison cell, persecuted. You can see why he's the expert in persecution. He knows both sides of the coin better than anyone, I believe. And so this is the context, the background of him writing to the uh, Philippian church, already enduring or about to endure sufficient, uh, significant hardship for their faith. And he says this, But I want you to know, brethren, the things which happened to me, listen to his words and listen to his pastoral heart here, the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. This isn't a bad news story don't be alarmed, don't be afraid, the fact that I'm in prison has actually caused the gospel to advance. He goes on to say, so that it's become evident to the whole palace guard, I love this little phrase, and to all the rest. I don't even know who they are, just a random miscellaneous group of people that now know about Jesus because Paul is sitting in prison. That my chains are in Christ, And most of the brethren in the Lord, listen to this, this is you and me now, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Isn't that beautiful? You might want to remember that passage of Scripture. That's become a source of hope for me as I continue to hear these stories of suffering around the world. Don't be afraid. And these are the, the two things that I can see in that passage that are the fruit of persecution. Number one, persecution advances the gospel. And we see this time and time again, as John just mentioned in that video. Iran, one of the difficult, I think it's number nine, the ninth most dangerous country to follow Jesus, the fastest growing evangelical church in the world is in Iran. There are stories of, I get goosebumps, stories of people walking through the street, uh, devout Muslims being tapped on the shoulder and meeting a man. uh, feeling a a sense of love and they want to know more about him. And they say, where can I find out about you? And he says, I'll visit that building there on Sunday. It's an underground church. One in three Muslim conversions in Iran have nothing to do with a Christian leader at all, a vision of Jesus. It's very, very common. Persecution advances the gospel. People are willing to share their faith regardless uh, of the cost. But the second thing I see is that persecution builds the church. Just remember that passage there, that Paul became confident by his chains and the people around him were much more bold to speak the gospel without fear. That's my heart for you and for me this morning, that we would draw hope and encouragement from these believers and that we would be more uh, encouraged, more passionate about sharing Jesus with those around us. I'll pause and tell you a story of an incredible man I met. His name's Din Van Zen. I've got his photo on the next slide. And he's from Vietnam. He's the young man in the middle. He was the same age as me. And uh, he was the first convert to Christianity in his village of only 100 people. I want you to imagine for a moment that you grew up in a village of 100 people, probably the size, probably about the capacity of this room. You would know everyone, right? Most of them, a huge chunk of them are related to you. They're your best friends. You've grown up with them. Everything in your life is encapsulated in that village. And that was Din Van Zen's story. Open Doors have partners there that translate the Bible, uh, which actually takes 14 years to do to translate into the local dialect. Uh, But that's too long, right? So in the meantime, they do uh, verbal translations, put them on these little solar-powered SD cards, and hook them over the horns of cattle uh, so they can listen to the gospel in their native tongue while they're plowing their rice paddies. I thought that was pretty cool. And so Din Van Zen hears about Jesus and becomes a Christian, profound, radical transformation. Uh, through one of these oxen broadcasts, through a rice paddy, runs back to his village. And in a previously unreached people group, revival breaks out. One family, two families, eventually five families convert to Christianity. But that causes some problems for the local leaders. Vietnam, you might not know, is one of five communist states left in the world. And they actually... Uh, continue to manipulate particularly regional areas like this for their own gain. And so the villagers stop playing along when they turn to Jesus. They stop sacrificing food to idols. And so it becomes very obvious very quickly who has converted to Christianity. And they come into town. The, uh, the political leaders come into town, call a town hall meeting, get all 100 villagers in the room, set up a PA system, uh, projector screens... And they put Din Van on stage in front of them and begin to roll video after video of malnourished children, African children with their clothes falling off. And they say to the villagers, if you allow this man to convert your village to Christianity, this is what will happen to you. The gods will no longer appease you. They will no longer produce your crops to harvest. Uh, Your children will die and you'll suffer a terrible death. They do this for our After hour, every night for seven nights, if you allow Din Van Zen to convert you to Christianity, this is what will happen to your children. By the end of a week, the villagers are enraged, screaming at him, swearing at him, spitting on him, spitting on his children. The government know our job here is done. They don't want to be seen to actively persecute Christians. It's not good for tourism or diplomacy. So they pack down their PA system and they leave town, (coughs) leaving the villagers to do their worst. For four hours, Din Venzen told us story after story. All of us were sobbing, the things that he'd endured. They um, broke into his home, took his newborn child, just about killed his child. He was able to get the child out of their arms and ran away, had to live in the forest for four weeks. (laughs) They uh, destroyed his home in front of him. They... He was telling us, this is where he was weeping uncontrollably, that all of his salary went to buy one pig. Seems so foreign to us, doesn't it, in our society? But I could tell that this pig was representative of his identity. It was um, all he could do to sustain it. And the goal was that he would sell this pig to be able to send his kids to get some kind of education. And as he was weeping, he was telling us that the villagers came through in front of his family, killed, cooked and ate this pig. I could tell there was a cultural disconnect because that was actually the moment that he was most distraught. But it was just this symbol of everything that he'd worked for being destroyed in front of him. Now, Din Van was so severely persecuted that when open doors came across him, uh, we actually offered to relocate him and move him to a different village. And I've got his quote on the next slide because it blew my mind and I want you to take this in. He said to us, if I go... Who will share the gospel with them? Doesn't it remind you of Paul's words in that previous passage, that encouragement uh, that they've become confident by my change? They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Din Van Zen is still sharing the gospel in that part of Vietnam. In fact, we actually put him through a covert underground Bible college. I think I'm allowed to say that out loud. I'm, I am. Um, <laughs> They're just so willing to do whatever it takes, training hundreds and hundreds of Christian leaders. There's 28,000 people being trained in the gospel in that part of the world. Isn't that amazing? Let's continue to pray for the local church in Vietnam as I continue this morning. If I leave, who will share the gospel with them? I want you to start thinking about your own life and your own walk with Jesus. Let's not make this about an us and them. There is one church and we're a part of that church. What's Jesus doing in your life? Where have you become a little bit dull, a little bit uh, afraid to share the gospel with those around about you? And let's have a look at our response to persecution. Paul goes on, uh, Philippians 1.19, He says this. <clears throat> he says, "For I know, this will turn out for deliverance through your prayer." I need to pause there. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I believe those forms. Uh, that you all got on the way in, will give you access either on the door or on the way out. If not, I got a few shakes. They'll give you access to resources so that you can be equipped to continue to pray for the persecuted church. Open Doors does this so beautifully and so well. We can see there that Paul reminds us the deliverance is through your prayer. Don't be afraid to pray for the persecuted church. Pray with the persecuted church. If you want a few things to pray for, it's completely unbiblical to pray for their persecution to stop. So we pray for their endurance, pray that they would continue to stand strong, that they'd follow Jesus no matter the cost, that they wouldn't give up their faith in him because of the pressures around them, that they'd be able to access the Bible. You know, Open Doors delivered one million Bibles in one day in 1981 into China, completely transformed the state of the church in that country. Continue to pray for access to the word of God. But he goes on and he says, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That word supply is pretty important too. I don't believe we can just sit on our hands, and I'm proud to be a part of a church that partners with Open Doors financially. So when you give in your tithes and offerings, in your regular giving, we support the persecuted church by default every time you give. On behalf of Open Doors, thank you. I can tell you, I've seen these projects firsthand. They are changing people's lives, they are truly advancing the gospel. So you're already doing something just by your contribution to our church. Think about you though. This is where the story turns to you. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain think about those words for a moment. It's my prayer for you today that in nothing you would be ashamed. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that I'm no longer slaves to fear. I'm no longer a slave to my fear. I want to ask you to uh, consider responding in a practical way. It might even be just raising your hands. It might be coming out the front. I know that's a little bit risky, a little bit audacious. Maybe you want to pledge your life again to Jesus and say, I am all yours. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not going to turn back on following you, Jesus. Paul's prayer that in nothing I shall be ashamed. I've already mentioned these three, but I see today three ways that we respond to persecution. First of all, we pray, as I've mentioned, we give, and we go. For you, think about your neighbor. I don't know about you, but in my life, in Australian culture, I have my little garage door remote. I drive home and I push my remote and the door opens and I drive down into my sanctuary and the door closes behind me. And I have very little to do with my neighbours. It's so easy to live a separated, segregated life now. What is Jesus doing in your community around you, in your workplace? Where have you been afraid to share the gospel? Now's your chance now's your opportunity. And finally, I want to close today to encourage you with the words again of Jesus himself. We opened with his words to promise us persecution, but he closes with a promise as well. He says this in John 12:24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. I thought a lot about that verse over the last four years, meeting the persecuted church. The previous verse that said, "For me to live is Christ and to die is gain." I thought I understood that. I thought it meant dying to myself or to my sin or to my needs. I've learned to realize that it actually means something much more physical than that for so many people all around the world. And I see it again echoed in this verse, the words of Jesus, that if a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, unless it falls to the ground and dies, then it won't produce much fruit. I'm remembered of the words in Revelation where it says that they'll overcome by the word of their testimony. And I think of the seed as their testimony this morning. For four years, I saw my job at Open Doors as casting seed, praying that it would fall on fertile ground and that the stories, people's death, people like Maria's husband who lost his life, that it wouldn't be in vain, but it would produce a harvest of intense commitment, fervour to the gospel. That's my prayer for you today, that it would produce a harvest in your life. Maybe as we close and as you prepare to respond, I can pray for you today. Why don't we stand to our feet? as we pray together. God, only you know the circumstances of the lives in this room. You know the sacrifices. You know the sufferings. And so God, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would just begin to move so gently on our hearts today. That you would show us where we've become a bit cold to you. Or a bit cold to share your gospel, where we've maybe become a bit comfortable in our Western world. God, convict us where we have forgotten what it means to to live a bold life for you. God, where we've become more concerned about our comfort than our mission. God, forgive us where we've turned even our worship into something that's more about us than about you. I pray for this community at Koolangatta specifically, Lord. I pray you would always turn their hearts, first of all, to you, but then to the community around them, Lord God. I just get a sense in my heart to pause and pray for um, people in their heart who are maybe going through the motions of their faith, but are distant from Jesus. I just hear his words run to the Father in my ears that you don't need to be afraid or ashamed. This is a a loving community. I know Scott would love to reintroduce you to Jesus. That might be one of the people that respond today is to recommit your life to Jesus. Those of you who are passionate about him but maybe have grown a little bit cold in your mission, I'd love to invite you to respond and join us at the front for some prayer. I'd love to pray with you this morning as the team lead us in this song, No Longer Slaves. Thanks. You unravel me.